All right, uh, let's do the gospel lesson today for the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene, uh, the gospel of St. Luke 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50, reads, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. And when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so just a couple of things before we jump too far into the text. This is the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene. Um, Mary is, is known um, by name for a couple of things. She is healed by Jesus, and she is the first witness to the resurrection. That's what we know, because it's by name. Then there's what has been often attributed to Mary Magdalene by church history, um, which is where this alternate reading comes in, because is this woman actually given a name? Although historically the church has believed and, and, and taught that this is Mary. Um, I don't know it. I won't bet my salvation on it. Because honestly it doesn't matter what she is. It matters what she's called by Jesus. Holy, forgiven. But at the same time, um, it, it becomes a good exercise. Um, for one, to, to consider the the beliefs of those who have gone before you. Um, the church isn't about reinventing the wheel, but confessing the faith of those who have gone before us. And so this is why, well, the sermons that you hear here are of the same doctrine, of the same content that Luther would have preached and that Augustine would have preached and that Peter himself would have preached. This is tied to, to a larger picture. And so where the saints fit into this is not how they stand of themselves, but how they relate to our Lord and what they can show of him. And so when we talk about Mary Magdalene, um, there was a movie and a book like 15 years ago where supposedly she was Jesus' secret wife. There's been a lot of talk about Mary Magdalene. And one of the reasons is, um, well, she's not a credible witness to the resurrection. By the standards of that time, she is not a credible witness to the resurrection. And so we figure, why her? And then we start filling in the blanks. That's the wrong way to do the Bible, though. 
instead of starting where the Bible doesn't talk and trying to figure out why it doesn't say it, well, who's smarter, you or God? You really going to figure that out? Okay. Um, instead, start with what the church actually does show. The scriptures actually do teach and there go forward. And so I say this might be Mary Magdalene and it might be somebody else. And really, it doesn't matter. Um, either way, you're called to remember the Eighth Commandment and not disparage her, so let's go forward. Fair enough? Questions there? Got one? All right, one other point of, of clarity before we get too far into this. Uh, this Pharisee where Jesus is eating, his name is Simon. This is not Simon Peter. Simon Peter was not a Pharisee but a fisherman. There's two guys named Simon. It's a whole bunch of Marys. There's a couple of Simons. There's a couple of Judases. There's, yeah, names are common. We still got the same thing. Um, there's a whole bunch of Johns and a whole bunch of Bills, and it's, it's not that hard to find a, a match unless your name is Harrison in which case you're probably off the hook. Yeah, there's like three of us now, all right? Um, three, yeah. Three that I know or know of. <laughs> I'm sure I know every Harrison, too. We have meetings. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Nicodemus? All right. Um, of the actual text. Let's just start with this. There's a difference between being near Jesus and actually needing to be near Jesus. Fair enough? What does that difference look like practically? There's a difference between just being near Jesus and being near Jesus because you need him. Needing Jesus versus loving Jesus. Okay. Yeah, we can go that. I like puppies. Can we do puppies? Similar thing. Is it better or worse if you're near a puppy? Life is 100% better if you're near a puppy. It's just, it's a fact of life. If, if there's a puppy here, better than it was. Okay. Do you need the puppy? You like having the puppy around, but do you need anything from the puppy? No. Jesus is not a poppy. There's two people who have uh, speaking roles, more or less, who have interactions with Jesus in this text. One is the Pharisee Simon, and the other is this woman of ill repute. Who needs, or at least who is aware that they need Jesus? The woman, how does this express itself? In, in the devotion in the begging sure um in the love um <clears throat> this is the the text he who is forgiven much loves much he who is forgiven little loves little if you don't think you need anything from jesus then it's nice to have a puppy around but as nice as it is how many actually have puppies at home that's weird Huh? Yeah, I got a dog. She, she's old, though. Um, just lays around most of the day now. Let's my kids climb on her, which is nice. It's really easy to sort of paint this in, in 
imaginary tones, but this plays itself out in the church today. There is a right kind of church and a wrong kind of church. It actually matters what kind of church you go to. Um, because there is a difference between being near Jesus and being near Jesus to receive. Being near Jesus out of need. There is a church in Lincoln. Just got a newspaper article published because of how um, accepting they were. So I'm going to read to you a, a, a little portion from this article. And we'll talk about it. This is Lincoln. This is not far away. This is Red State, Nebraska. As each one approached the table to the Lord's Supper, they heard the words, You are special. As they picked up a piece of bread, and just as you are, they dipped it into a chalice of white grape juice. You're special just as you are. You guys are jerks. What are you shaking your heads for? (laughs) That's not what you come to church for? Where's the forgiveness in that? You've judged rightly, but let's, I mean, instead of just throwing rocks, because it's fun to throw rocks, um, it's sort of the problem. But that, thy blood was shed for me. See, this is, this is just it. I want to start with just as I am. Pastor got it exactly right. This is the place to start. Instead of just making fun of somebody who does things differently than us, because that doesn't actually help anybody. Let's start with the idea, just as I am. Because there's a hymn that starts this way. Just as I am without one plea, but that. That means that there's something other than me that matters here. Namely, the blood. Let's start with the other assumption. Just as I am. Just as I am is the problem. Just as I am means anxious. Just as I am means sinful. Just as I am means sick and dying. Is that okay? That's the real question. That's not how God wants you. You can look to his law and say, thou shalt not. And I say, but it's what I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's do this with, with your own families then. Um... Who remembers the first time their kid was sick, like genuinely sick, not just a cough or a sniffle, but genuinely sick? Just as I am, though, so it's fine, right? And the parents are no longer worried? Why? The wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we just want to start with the premise of, I am this way, so it must be okay for me to be this way, there's no such thing as calculus, because I can't do calculus. What matters is that I can't do calculus, and everything that would say that doing calculus is good should go away. Therefore, every scientific advancement that we've ever made should just disappear because I can't do the thing. It's what I am. What do you think? You don't like air conditioning? iPhones are overrated? What would you do during a sermon other than listen? I don't know. Um, If you want to base the whole thing on you, on you. Well, then it's nice to be near things that make you happy. And it's not nice to be near things that make you sad. But who then becomes the ultimate judge and arbiter of good and evil? You are God. Okay, is there a Bible passage that says, I, the Lord, your God, am holy, and you shall be holy as I am holy? Is there a Bible passage that speaks of Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead on the last day? Who gets to choose what's good and evil? 
God does. In fact, there's a point in time where there's sheep and goats separated, and as I understand it, the goats are really unhappy with the fact that they're called goats. And they say to the Lord, Lord, when did we not take care of you when you were hungry? When did we not visit you when you were in prison? Lord, what am I, how am I not good enough? Who's in charge? We want to set aside our standard. For one, because our standard, even by our own judgment, often is not good enough. That's what self-esteem recognizes, when it's bad at least. When it's good, it's the other end of the spectrum, but it's still only focused on the self. That's the irony. People with horrible self-esteem and people that are way too full of themselves are both self-absorbed. They're only looking at themselves and what they think as opposed to what God would say. God says you're holy, for Christ has died for you. Not because you've earned it. You've sinned. You're a sinner that Jesus died for. This is how we all stand, no matter what we think about ourselves. If we start with this idea, just as I am, we have to recognize then I must not have any problems. Just as I am without one plea. But that my... I, I, I want to chew on that. I think you, I think you might be on to it, but I, I want to chew on it because I don't want to say it wrong. Um, let me circle back around. Are you guys tracking too? Anybody else? Questions or comments? When we start with ourselves, ourselves are the problem. Even when we tell ourselves they're not. Good. If you're baptized, you're righteous, and you're holy, and you're worthy of love. So, huh? You're still a sinner. Yeah. Good. This is my point, actually. Whose work is baptism? Yours or God's? If it's your work, cool. You did something great. Here's your prize. If nothing in the scripture paints that picture, though, we're in trouble. If baptism is God's work for sinners that would forgive and make holy and call worthy of love. That actually fits more in line with the text. So here's Simon the Pharisee. A Pharisee means a good church-going person. It doesn't mean a supervillain. It doesn't mean a, a, an intentionally bad guy or a passive-aggressive person or anything else that we try and define it so that we can call our enemies Pharisees. A Pharisee is somebody who did his very best to uphold the law and serve his neighbor. A Pharisee is somebody who is active in worship. A Pharisee, though, is somebody who didn't think they needed anything from Jesus, but they were doing something. And they were just happy to be near Jesus. Like, I'm happy to be near puppies. I'm happy to be near puppies. This woman, why is she near Jesus? That's different. She knows she needs something. Yeah. She's desperate for it. Which one is upheld and commended? The one who receives or the one who thinks they don't need to receive anything? Let's go Luke 13, 26 and 27. Luke 13, 26 and 27. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Is being near Jesus enough? They ate with him. They heard him teach. Right. We don't go to communion because we want to pet a puppy. We don't go to communion to be told we're special. We go to be told we're forgiven. Because then we can actually be honest about ourselves and just as I am. Because the things that make me special usually just signal out that I've managed to sin in a way that's far more disgusting than most of the people around me. I mean, really. Even the things I do well that I'm so, so proud of secretly. Look what I did. And there my ego flares up. I'm special because I think that I'm better than you. Is that really, is that really something to be commended? Here we go to be forgiven. We kneel for a reason. I'm not here as an equal. I'm here as a beggar. Perfect. Can we roll with that? There's a difference between self-esteem and what we're worth to God. What's the difference? Self-esteem is on the self. What's your worth to God? Perfect. What he paid for you. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. Self-esteem is idolatry. I mean, we just, we're going to have to come out and say that, and especially in a world today that puts so much weight on it. It is hard to be a, anybody under the, I don't know about over the age of 35, but it's hard to be under because self-esteem is supposed to be everything. Like when you're a teenager, it's supposed to be on your looks, your athleticism, your grades, your relationships. In your 20s, it's supposed to be about your accomplishments. In your 30s, it's supposed to be about your income, your family. It's still, look at me and what I've done. And that's idolatry. It's not to say that athleticism is bad or these relationships are bad, but when you want to measure everything by it, you need nothing from God. And what about when it goes poorly? What about when it's going poorly and you lie to yourself and say that it's everybody else's fault that it's going poorly, which is something I'm really good at. Instead, we hear from Christ what our worth is. You are holy. You are worthy of love. Why? Because he loves you. He has paid this price. He has given you this identity. He has forgiven you all your sins. But that is a brutal, brutal message. If we notice in our text today, Luke 7, 39, this is actually what does it for Simon the Pharisee. Um, This is what puts the nail in the coffin. Uh, Luke 7, 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. When does Simon's opinion of Jesus take a nosedive? When he allowed himself to be in the presence of this woman who Simon himself wouldn't be around. 
Jesus loves sinners. And that is the nail in the coffin. If self-esteem is going to be your driving force, if your works are going to be your driving force, if church is where the good people go to get better, then you can go and hang out with everybody and then talk about how terrible the world is, how awful society is falling apart. Grab the news and just complain some. But then when an actual sinner walks in, we see what the church is about real quick. See, this woman comes to think more of Jesus because he forgives her sins. Just as this Pharisee comes to think less of him for it. You see the, the relation, I mean the, the, the devotion, excuse me. For the woman, it starts here and only increases. For the Pharisee, it starts here. He's willing to have him over for dinner. He thinks he's a prophet, maybe. But the more he gives to this woman, the less the Pharisee thinks of him. So what's church? Let's, I mean, I know that lots of people say lots of different things at communion. Um, I want to go to Matthew chapter 26. Huh? I think so. I truly do. Matthew uh, 26. Uh, verses like 26 and to 28, maybe. So I'm going to read you what was said in another church. As each one approached the table, they heard the words, You are special. As they picked up a piece of bread, and just as you are, as they dipped it into a chalice of white grape juice. Hear the word of the Lord. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's Jesus talking about, himself or you? What's this talking about, himself or God? Himself. You are special, just as you are. Where's God in that? He doesn't need to be there, though, so don't worry. Jesus says, this is my body for you. This is my blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. What makes you worthy here? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with whether or not there's body and blood. If there's body and blood... You have forgiveness. If there's body and blood, you're holy. If there's body and blood, you're worthy of love. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. See, Lutherans base everything on God's identity, God's presence, and God's gifts. We start with Jesus, and we work backwards to us. If you're starting with you and trying to work your way to Jesus, you don't actually need him much. What you got? We can eat and drink to our judgment. Condemnation. How do we eat and drink to our, our judgment? Right. So let's start with two, again, because there, there's two ways to approach this table. We can approach it based on who I am or approach it based on who God is. So the, word, the text is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It says, unless you uh, rightly discern the body, you eat and drink judgment unto yourself. 
That's the Bible verse. Is this talking about Jesus or is this talking about you? Rightly discern the body. This is talking about Jesus. If I come to communion because I think that I am special enough to do it, if I come to communion because I think I'm good enough to do it, if I don't come to communion, come to communion because I think that I am too sinful to do it, the only thing I'm really thinking about is not Jesus. It's me. The whole point of communion is something outside of yourself. Look to the Lord. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And I don't say look to your hearts, but look to, look to the Jesus that I'm holding up under bread and wine. It's not about you, which is good. Because the whole world is going to look at you according to you. That's Mary's problem here. Before the Lord, you're what he has made you to be. To not rightly discern the body is not just to actively denounce the true presence in communion. But it's to try and judge the thing based on your identity instead of God's. And this is where most of the closed communion tassels, tussles, wars come into play. I want to talk about this thing based on who I am. And so I can say, you know what? I, uh, who are you to tell me that I don't love Jesus? Simon the Pharisee thought a lot of Jesus until Jesus started forgiving sinners. I, I don't care what Jesus means to you, even the slightest little bit. I care what you mean to Jesus. Because that's the thing that's actually going to create faith. The Holy Spirit works in word and sacrament, not in you stirring yourself up to a false devotion. When you try and put it on your heart, what happens then when Jesus forgives your enemies? Do you like that Jesus? What happens then when Jesus allows you to suffer? Do you like that Jesus? What happens then when you pray and Jesus says, not right now? Do you like that Jesus? If we base it on that identity, the cross is meaningless. But if we start with the cross and we work our way backwards, everything else falls into line. Before Jesus meant anything to you, you meant so much to him that he would die. He has given you this gift over and over and over and over again. No matter what you've ever done, what you've ever said, and even after receiving it and falling away, falling back into sin, he doesn't abandon you or forsake you, but he pours out more. This is our faith, and this is, this is worth kneeling for. Do you want to come to communion so you can be seen or so you can sit next to the people that you think are important? Or do you want to come near because you actually need something from the God who promises to be there? This is to discern the body. This is to eat and drink rightly and not face condemnation. Does that kind of get after your point? I like that line of thought. What do you guys think? Questions, comments? How are we doing? From a worldly perspective. Right. Right. There's commandments that help us with that. Because it is. It's hard for you to get in that mind frame. It's hard for you to perceive that living in this world. And so God gives us two commandments in particular that, that are really helpful in shaping that. Bless you. The second and the third commandment are, are vital for this. So it's not just that there is a God. It's that his name matters. 
and we are to receive it properly. So the second commandment is you shall not, I should learn these one day, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And this means that we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. And the third is remember the, good, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, which means we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. God's name is so potent that he cares how you use it. It does stuff. You know what there's no rules for in my house? The things that can't get broken and the things that can't hurt anybody. Do whatever you want. I don't even care. I got other things to worry about. You know what has rules in my house? The things that can be used for power, for good or evil. If it can't hurt anybody, I don't care what you do with it. If it can't get broken, go nuts. If it's fragile, if it's dangerous, or if it's potentially very, very good, I insist. And so we have a eat your vegetables rule. Why? I love making kids cry. That is, that is 100% the answer, right? What is inside of a vegetable? Chuck in here to yell at me. Um, huh? There's healthy stuff for you. And so my kids eat their vegetables because there's power for good behind it. I insist that you use this thing for your good. God says, don't just avoid saying certain words when you stub your toe. He says, call upon me in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. He says, use my name rightly. And so the chief way the second commandment is broken uh, is not that we accidentally say the word damn. It's that we teach falsely about who God is. It's false doctrine. That is how we break the second commandment. And so God establishes to a people in this world who have trouble perceiving the things of God. First of all, there's a right way and a wrong way. There is a right way and a wrong way, and it doesn't mean what you think about it. Because if it was just what I think about it, I would have never failed a calculus test in my life. Because I felt very good about it until I got the grade. The first time. After that, it was just a very depressing cycle of taking tests. Because I knew going in, this was, this was going to be me again. The third commandment is where it actually grabs hold of people. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy which means we should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Where does God start to bestow this stuff? Right here. So that we actually have a, come, a place to come together and recognize that there's something otherworldly going on. That's why God says, do no work on the Sabbath day. It's not because turning on light switches is condemnatory. Which of you, if your kid fell in the well, wouldn't fish him out on the Sabbath day? Is that a Bible verse? It's this. It's so important that you have a place that is otherworldly, that God insists that you take time and set it aside so that nothing else can fill in that void. And we do this with a hundred other things, too. It's not that complicated. I started exercising in the morning, like, ridiculous early o'clock in the morning because I've tried every other time every other time and stuff starts to creep into that schedule I tried it late at night but then I was up till three four in the morning because I was on adrenaline still and then I didn't wake up early enough to help my wife get the kids ready for school and something crept in wasn't working 
Somebody told me that last hour of the workday, like between four and five when you sit in your office and you're convinced that you're going to get stuff done, but realistically you get nothing done because your brain is fried, go work out then. And I said, awesome, that's a good idea. And like two days a week, maybe it worked. But the others, there was actually stuff to do. And so I did my job. I was visiting people. I was sacramenting, whatever is going on. So that didn't work. I tried later in the mornings, but that didn't work. If I wake up before everyone else, nobody bothers me. And that time is set aside. That's really what it is. It's not that that's a sacred hour. I hate that hour. There should not be a 5 a.m. That's a ridiculous o'clock. There's a perfectly good 5 p.m. But I have set aside 5 a.m. for something else so that nothing else can fill it. Sunday morning. I know there's other stuff to do here. You know why there's so much room for free time? Because the world, actually according to what God has mandated, has at least in this country by and large said, you know what? I'm not going to make you work today. Make sure you've got time to take care of this. You know what else I could do at 5 a.m.? Sleep. It's a question of what's good. I know what else you can do Sunday morning. I really do. I think about it too. But God insists that you set this time aside, not because not doing work and going fishing is holy, but because receiving holy things makes you holy. The Simon the Pharisee, he is with Jesus, not doing any work. Is he holy for it? Mary, pleading before Jesus, is near Jesus, but receiving from Jesus, and is she holy for it? We set aside the Sabbath day so that we can receive, and we receive in means. Preaching, word, and sacrament. These are the things that start to shape us. How do we come to understand the scriptures better? We go to Bible study. I mean, really, it's not that hard. How did I pass calculus at all? I begged my TA to help me over and over and over again until I at least got a passing grade. I'm not proud of that grade, but a C is a C. I think there's a rhymes with degree. I don't know. Um, but I went to where there was knowledge. I went to where there was help. If there is something that teaches otherworldliness, Let's gather around that thing and receive it. If we make church to be completely worldly, what's the point? Of course the holy things don't make sense. There's nothing teaching them anymore. The reason that church is set aside to look different is because God is different. He's ontologically other. He is not you. You are not him. You were created in his image, but that has been corrupted by sin, so that just looking in the mirror isn't going to paint you a picture of what God is. Which is why so many people hate him, because they look in the mirror and they say, I'm so much more loving than God is, because I don't have a problem with any of the things he has a problem with. Of course I don't have a problem with stealing. I love to steal things. It makes me better off. Never mind that it hurts my neighbor. Who's more loving now? Well, God, because he actually cares about other people and not just me. You see the problem? When we make church so worldly that it doesn't actually teach who the divine is anymore, of course people don't understand who the divine is anymore. And so here we do unworldly things. We wear clothes that nobody else wears. We chant in ways that nobody else chants. We sing from instruments that are not popular. They're good, though, strictly for this reason. They're otherworldly. So much so that even if it's not Sunday morning and you hear organ playing, where's your mind go? Good. 
That's the point. Are you kind of following me? Questions or comments here? All right, so we have about five minutes, and um, of course, I left the important part to the very end when we can rush through it. So um, as we finish this text, Jesus says something that a lot of people run wild with. All right, and I just want to clarify it real quick. We've got time. So I'm going to read the, the second half of that text again. Um, beginning at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith is saved, you go in peace. So, um, because she loved God more than anybody else, she earned more forgiveness, is that it? What do you mean she earned more forgiveness? So, like, as long as I, I should sin, that grace would abound. Is that a Bible passage? By all means? That's Romans 6, too. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. So, I mean, it's put there because that's the very first place we want to run. The very best Christians are the ones that do the worst things and are forgiven for them. And so, I can be a pastor who is baptized as an infant, who spent all my days in the house of the Lord, who hasn't wandered off and, and done awful things, or I could be a pastor who was baptized late and did terrible things. And I'm somehow a better one for doing terrible No. What matters is that we're forgiven all our sins. All. Shall we sin the grace may abound? By no means. What matters here is not that she is somehow holier for having sinned more, but she is holier for receiving from God. All your sins are forgiven. All. What if you have two and I have ten, and we both have all our sins forgiven? Where do we stand? Equal. That's what matters. We look at each other as completely equal, not by what we've done, not by where we've been, not by our number of transgressions, but simply by the amount of grace outpoured. For God says, all your sins are forgiven you. And he clarifies, just so we don't get out in trouble with this, for he says, your faith has saved you. Where do you get your faith from? You receive that. I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me. Faith comes from God. God gives bountifully. And that's what makes this special. That's what makes this worthy. Um, it's, it's not that it's better to sin more because we'll somehow love God. It's that when you think you need less from God, he's less important to you. That's really what it comes down to. There's an old saying, and it's very popular, when you make your sins small, you make your Jesus small. If Jesus is simply to be a moral compass, there are other moral compasses. I mean, truly. I can find other people to look up to who have not done terrible, awful things, at least publicly. I can look to Pastor Ingebrigtsen and say, I know that he would confess to me that he is a poor, miserable sinner. But I can look to him and see just a Christ-like figure who is patient and loving and always sees the best in people. And I will uphold you publicly for it, without shame, even no matter if you don't like me for it. I can look to Pastor Ingebrigtsen and say, you know what, if I lived my life half as well as he did, I'd be better off than I am right now. He would contend with that. Because he's a faithful man, and he wants to receive from Jesus. But you see what happens when we judge only by the outward thing. We just start bickering over who's the best behaved. Instead, huh? Right. My point, yeah. And so, if Jesus is just there to sort of shape you, but you don't actually need it, what's the point? 
If he's actually here to forgive, well, that's a whole different kind of Jesus. That's a bigger kind of Jesus because that kind of forgiveness is otherworldly. It comes from God. It comes from a cross. Questions or comments on that? So is she forgiven because she did more? Why is she upheld? Because she did more? She loved more? What's going on? Perfect answer. She believed that he forgave her. That's enough. Good. Absolutely. Perfect. All right, anybody else? Questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all.